0: Hey, what's up everyone? Welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. Today I'm joined by one of the most influential voices of our generation, activist, writer, and best-selling author, Mr. Sean King. Sean, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, no, thank you, Melinda. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And and you know, I, t- I have to tell people every day, like I don't see myself, I don't see myself as a as a guy on Instagram or a guy <laughs> on social media like. When I wake up and see my, I, I don't see myself as an influential person primarily because when I wake up in the morning, I see myself as a husband, as a father. I have five kids. Um, you know, I see myself as a as a, a leader that's out here trying to do my best. And yeah, and for the most part, being influential has caused me a lot of trouble. <laughs> and if I'm not able to use that influence for good, it's cost me and my family a lot. And so the only value to me of being influential is if I can try to leverage that to do some type of good in the world, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and you, like you said, you wear so many hats, you know, you have your grassroots law project, you're the CEO of North star, you're you have your own podcast, you're a writer, and most importantly, yeah. you're, you're a husband and a father. And as you said, you know, it has caused you a lot of problems. And, and I say this jokingly, but it does seem like every other week, someone's trying to cancel you on social media, right?
1: Oh, obviously. <laughs> and, and you know, and here's the thing. Um, The way I was raised and even like my early days as a leader And Melinda, you may, you may know this, you know, I was a pastor for many years and part of my experience as a pastor was to, to value all people, to listen to all people. And, um, like, I'm not at all bothered by real sincere criticism. And when people have a sincere critique of something that they saw me say or do, that's one thing. And Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll engage that. But I guess what bothers me is that now so many of the things that, that people people cancel me for aren't actually things that have happened. It's like right. ba- based on a lie or based on a myth. And and that's frustrating. And so all you can do is kind of put your head down, keep doing the work that you do and and push on through. And just ultimately, I know that the work that I do, the person that I am, that stuff will survive the attacks that come my way. Yeah. And um, as you and I record this, um, we're just we just past the King holiday, and part of the you know part of what reminds me regularly about what Dr. King experienced, and I'm not even comparing myself to him. It's just to say that at the end of his life. He was universally loathed and critiqued, right. and even hated by people on the left and the right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was also just based on lies and rumors, and and uh, some of it was just people didn't like the politics that he had adopted. And uh, you just have to push through it.
0: Absolutely, and I think that you handle it really well. To be honest, just from from my vantage point, you know. And I think right. even if you don't choose to be a public figure if you are thrown into the limelight in that way it just kind of comes up the territory that you're going to be scrutinized no matter what you do you could cure cancer and someone's going to find a problem with it you know but how do you manage to just stay focused on what your goals are and what you are trying to accomplish despite all of the you know negativity and adversity that you do face
1: well it's it's it may look one way outwardly, but it's, it's a, it is a struggle Mm. when you have so many things coming at you from so many different directions. I wish I could say that it's easy just to kind of have tunnel vision and do my work. There are a couple of things that I do very practically. Like I, I have a very detailed schedule every day and my schedule takes me from half hour to half hour, you know, from block to block. And in those blocks, there's not a lot of opportunity for me to see what people are saying about me mm. see even there have been days where i've been a top trending topic and i've hardly seen it because i'm i'm working like right. uh you know i have i have every day i have multiple meetings to lead you know multiple tasks to complete and so some of it is organizing my day in a way that doesn't give me a lot of time to do anything other than focus on my family and my work. Yeah. And, and so scheduling is a lot of that. Some of it is also having goals that require me to stay super focused. And if I take my eye off of the goals that I have, people's lives are impacted. Mm -hmm. I'm, I've been fighting for, um, for the past year to help free a man named Michael Thompson, who has been in prison for almost 25 years for a a conviction for weed. Mm. He has spent basically his entire adult life, since he's been in prison, his mother died, his only child died, in prison for weed in a state that now has legalized weed in Michigan. Of course. And on any given day, I could take my eye off of fighting for Michael and then worry about what people are saying about me, but then it hurts him. And so I try to focus in on the people that I'm trying to help, the cases, the laws, the policies, the campaigns, uh, so that I I can provide those women and men the support they deserve. And if I take my eye off of that, Ultimately, it hurts the organizations that I lead. It hurts the people we're trying to help, and so some of it is, though. And I talk about this in my book. Just having a really clear understanding of what it is you're fighting for, mm-hmm. who it is you're fighting for, and that will really help you stay focused. Which is, which is, just staying focused in 2020, 2021 is hard in general, and uh, but but really clear. Goals and ideas—they help me do that.
0: I love that. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about your book because I have it. I haven't finished reading it, but how much I have read. What I really appreciate about the voice of the book is how vulnerable you are in it. And I think that if people took the time to read it, and I hope they do, they'll learn your story and how you got into this position that you are in. So I do want to backtrack a little bit because for yeah, the reader, sure. the, the listeners that haven't read it yet, I want to talk about. Kind of that pivotal moment in your life when you knew that fighting for social justice and becoming an activist was going to be what your life's trajectory was
1: yeah well melinda when i when I sat down to write the book i I had a really hard decision to make because there really there are lots of ways to write a book, but there there were two ways I could have written this book I could have written the book like how most of us manage our social media accounts mm-hmm. where we show people just the best of our lives and just the highlights. And I could have taken people from highlight to highlight. And and a lot of people write their books that way, yeah. where it, it is just kind of like a really long Instagram post. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I had to say, books last forever. I had to say, okay, am I going to sit down and tell the whole story about who I am, where I come from, mistakes I've made, lessons I've learned. And I just decided when I, it, it was writing the book took a lot of effort and required me to take time away from a lot of people and projects. I just decided when I wrote it to to be vulnerable and to just let the chips fall where they may. And I I knew when I wrote it, that a lot of people who think I'm a villain or whatever, I knew they would probably never read it, Yeah. but I wanted it for, I wanted when, when you read it, I wanted it to be even insightful for you and others who said, I think I know this guy. I think I support him, but I want to understand even more of who he is and what he's teaching. Mm-hmm. And um, the so the book is not an autobiography. It's a, it's really a guy on how to change the world and how to use your life to change the world but I tried to infuse my story where I could to show people just the story of how one person is trying to use his life to make the world a better place as well and a lot of that required me to kind of share my origin story for where I did get a heart for for social justice and and for people who were hurting and victimized and I have, I have almost an entire chapter dedicated to kind of telling the story of the pain of my high school life and experience. And I didn't say this in the book, but it was actually a really hard chapter to, for me to write. Mm. And I realized I'm, I'm 41 now, so that was 26 years ago and I had compartmentalized a lot of that pain and a lot of the trauma that I had experienced and I would reference it here and there but I to write it the way I wrote it required me to kind of visit that place and to unpack it and relive it and in kind of the stereotypical masculine way I didn't think that would be hard but it was actually really hard for me Mm -hmm. to
0: write and
1: um after I wrote that particular chapter, I literally had to take several weeks off of writing it because it was it was just a hard, painful place for me to visit. And um, you know, I, I grew up in a small rural town in Kentucky, and I was super loved by my mother, who was always incredibly supportive of me. My mother's still living, but she was at the time growing up in Kentucky. She was just a uh, a hardworking factory worker. She was a sweet white woman who taught me very little about race, about racism. She taught me principles about standing up against people who are bullied. She taught me about hard work, these types of things. Mm -hmm. But like most, particularly in the eighties and nineties, most, most multiracial or biracial children raised by white families weren't taught a lot about race and racism
0: right right this
1: was I grew up before social media before the internet now there are Facebook groups and communities and things that try to help people through these things my mother didn't had my mother had those things she probably would have used them Mm -hmm. but She didn't even really know much about how to raise someone like me with the unique challenges that I had. And none of that was a problem really until I got to high school and in elementary school and middle school, I was kind of like a, a bridge builder between races and cultures and class. And I thought that's who I would always be. And when I got to high school, the the racial divisions and separation they were deeply entrenched and within just a few days of being in high school I started experiencing like overt racism and bigotry right away mm-hmm. and it changed ultimately it changed the entire course of my life for my, For the first year that I was in high school this is in 1993 I was Spat on. I had a guy throw a jar of tobacco spit in my face one day. I had two different occasions where I was literally chased by guys in trucks who were trying to run me over. Like these are things that probably, again, this was before social media. Had there been social media, any one of these incidents would have been a, a, a viral. viral yeah. At
0: moment.
1: And yeah. But I felt so alone uh, when all of these things happened. I reported these things to, to, to my high school principals, the assistant principals, my guidance counselors who did nothing. And it ultimately created the environment in, in my high school where racist white students got the message that they could do anything they wanted to me without repercussion. Hmm. Uh, and in March of 1995, this is the spring of my sophomore year, I was brutally beaten by this same group of students that had harassed me for years. And, uh, the injuries from that caused me to miss the rest of my sophomore year and all of my junior year of high school. I had, I had three spinal surgeries. I had fractures in my face and ribs and I was completely broken emotionally. Like I was just deeply wounded and kind of had to claw and scratch my way back physically and emotionally and it changed me in ways that I never could have predicted it it caused some damage in the sense that it really stole whatever childhood I had left it it kind of robbed me of whatever childhood innocence I had up until that moment It changed me physically. I still suffer from the pain and injuries. I've had multiple spinal surgeries since then. And and it also did something that was redemptive. It put in me something that really wasn't there before. It put in me a deep passion for people who are hurting, for people who've experienced injustice. And it caused me in in a deeply you know, almost permanent way to just have a huge heart for oppressed people. Mm. And it wasn't that I didn't care about oppression or racism or bigotry at all before that, but I was just a normal teenage boy, you know, with all the normal teenage boy things after that, it just kind of permanently changed the direction of my life. And, um, racial justice and social justice just became uh just like a a a burning passion and even and i try to address this even in ways that that weren't always healthy like i was just like i i did an interview recently about the work that i do kind of tracking down white supremacists a lot of that comes from the pain that i experienced as a child you know and and i don't know if that's uh, a healthy way to live out the pain, <laughs> but it it's just a part of who I am, and and social media doesn't um, doesn't allow for that. You know, you social media only it kind of frames people in these little little bitty moments, and um, part of why I wanted to be able to even share that part of my story was just so people understand my motivations and where I come from and, and how I'm able, you know, when people say, well, Sean, how do you endure the critiques and the ugliness? Like, this is just who I am. And, and there's no trending topic or, or rumor that's going to cause me to stop being me. And if this was like a hobby then I would stop. It's part of my mission and identity are wrapped up in the whole trajectory of my life. And so yeah. I'm not going to bail because it's not something that I'm just choosing. It's a part of who I am.
0: Yeah. A couple of things that you said resonated with me, but the first one is that when you said those kids, you know, they never got reprimanded, never suffered any consequences for for beating you up. That to me, like at at that age, that's like their first lesson in white privilege, not even knowing that they're learning what white privilege is because those kids, they just grow up to eventually, you know, be CEOs probably, or maybe lawmakers that apply that same lack of consequence to their life in general. I mean, we see it, you know, we've seen it the last four
1: years, you yeah. know? Well, I wouldn't even, you know, I wouldn't even, I had, um, in 1993, my mother, my mother loved me as much as a mother could ever love a child. Like and my mother and I were incredibly close and I had never really experienced the type of ugliness that I started experiencing when I got to high school. hmm and there was a part of me that was so crazy about my mother. She was a single mother, and 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 we spent, we would go to the movies together, we would go out and eat together. Like we she wasn't married, she didn't have a boyfriend. And it was just me and her. And my brother, my brother, who has since passed away, went off to college. And it was just me and her living in this place. And when I got to high school and started experiencing all this, I mean, like I mean, crazy ugliness. There was a part of me that didn't even wanna tell my mother that I was experiencing this stuff. And one day I had gone to a, a homecoming dance and I lived about a mile away from the high school. And I, and I would often walk home from the school. Mm-hmm. And when I left the school, it was dark out and that normally wasn't a problem for me. And um, I left the school and this group of guys were waiting for me in their truck and literally started barreling down a road behind the school to run me over. And I had to scale this fence to get away from them. And I was on the fence and I thought they were just going to leave. And while I'm on the fence, they just parked their car and sat there. And I'm scared to death and I see them. I see every single one of them. And I knew several of their names and the ones whose names I didn't know I had recognized them from school and knew that I could get their names. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, when I finally got home that night, I told my mother what what had just happened to me. And my mother was over the top angry Mm. and, and said, like, listen, you need to go to school on Monday and you need to report everything that happened word for word, name for name. And I did that. I went to the principal's office, explained to them what had happened, and named every person that I could recognize that was there. And nothing happened, and it was the beginning of them. Just as you said, it was the beginning of them realizing there are rules that don't apply to us, and it caused me to really um, sink into a shell as well because I, I realized that there was no protection for me there, and and there was no there was no justice, there was no accountability, and. I didn't have those words like justice and accountability, but I just realized like I'm on my own here. And um, I I started that year, my freshman year in high school, I got to the high school healthy and happy and optimistic. And by the end of that year, I was already just like a hollow shell of myself. And, um, but I never imagined that what eventually happened to me would. And, um, it just, ultimately, I'm just thankful that I I recovered from it enough to even emotionally to kind of pick myself up and still still live my life and and, and my mother was a big part of that like she believed in me so much that it kind of helped me still feel optimistic about my future.
0: I grew up in Santa Barbara, California, which is a predominantly white area. I don't know if you've ever been there before, yeah, I've been but there. And it's a beautiful city and it's a very, you know, hippies, you know, very, you know, kind, it feels liberal, yeah. but <laughs> when you kind of peel back the layers, it's actually an extremely racist town. And for you, the racism that you experienced was, like you said, very overt and, and upfront and the racism that I experienced, I actually didn't realize it was racism until I got older because it was that yeah. subtle, like those microaggressions. Did you ever experience that, like the microaggressions or was it always just kind of overt and in your face?
1: Well. There might have been um some you know, again, even those words like um there are things that I can look back on now and see differently as an adult with the language and words, but a lot of what I experienced was super overt. Mm-hmm. And um, but there were things there there were there were plenty of microaggressions that my friends and and and, and partners and buddies that they experienced. And, um, but when I, when I look back on it, at least now 25 plus years later, what stands out for me were, were kind of the, the worst moments. I, there were, there were little moments along the way, but the racism we experienced there was, you know, I, I said this in the book and I went before I wrote that particular chapter, I went back and interviewed all of my friends to make sure, that I was that I was getting it right right and we would see this is just how common the racism and bigotry was like we would we would see racial slurs carved on the walls of the bathroom stalls and like overtly racist stuff and we didn't even report it like it was just it wasn't like oh oh my god there the n-word is is on the wall of the bathroom you just saw the N word on the wall of the bathroom and just dealt with it, and it was just like it was just Monday, Tuesday, yeah, yeah. And and so we had we had it had it had grown to become our norm, and we all knew that the school seemingly didn't care, and uh, it just became a, like a, a fact of life every day. Man, yeah, crazy. I,
0: it is crazy. I can't even imagine growing up in Kentucky. <laughs> like-
1: No, it's It's, where you, you know, where you grow up impacts you in so many ways. Oh, for sure.
0: For sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So one of the fascinating things I find about you is that you were a former pastor. And, you know, I, I, I've i always been a Christian my whole life, very liberal progressive Christian. I'm a worship leader at my church as well. And one of the things that I've found very frustrating, you know, just getting involved in politics and, and following them for the last few years is how uh, an entire political party has pretty much latched themselves onto the faith of Christianity. Um, and I'm curious what your take is on how religion plays a role into politics. And if you ever think that religious values and morals will not, you know, kind of dictate how people govern or, or how they vote even.
1: Yeah. Well, I think in this, in this country, religion and politics of all religion and business, religion and politics, religion and commerce, they've always been deeply intertwined and from the early founding of, of the United States as a nation to a, lo- a lot of the core businesses and, and forms of commerce. So I don't, I don't think that there'll ever be a time where those things aren't deeply intertwined and, and the identity of the modern Republican Party and the modern Democratic Party, though. Those things are also really deeply entrenched, mm-hmm. and what's wild is many members of the Democratic Party on a national level, from from senators to to people in the House to governors, are actually deeply religious people. Yeah, and and almost every African American in government is deeply religious. And, and yet, when people think of religion and politics, they think of the Republican Party.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and and it's in some ways, it's because they weaponize it in a exactly. way that others don't. Um, you know, i've I've been a big critic of Joe Biden politically. Mm-hmm. But Joe Biden is actually a deeply religious man and mm-hmm. has been his entire life and not for show. It's it was how he was raised. His faith is a huge part of his life. Yet most people see mo, most Republicans see him as a as an atheist or an yeah. agnostic, and it's like no, no, no. This is a church going, devout, religious man. Barack Obama was the same way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, wow.
1: Barack Obama was. Eh, he was married in church. He attended church regularly. His kids were baptized in church, and yet uh, he was seen as something other than a Christian. He was
0: seen as the Antichrist his yeah. whole
1: presidency for no he was reason. Seen as, yeah, he was seen as the Ant, which is just a when you you look you look at it now, just objectively, it's just stupid, just yeah. like <laughs> weird. And when in reality, he was about as decent of like all of the things that are supposed to exemplify a quote-unquote good Christian man, he exemplified all of these principles from a devout husband, a dedicated father, you know, like a man who was honest and decent. He was everything except white and Republican. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a huge difference of here he was, you know, but but he came out of a, he came out of, of a progressive black church tradition as well. And when, when president Obama was running for office, they really demonized his pastor and his church in a way that kind of even made president Obama distance himself from those, those beginnings. But if you go back and read his first autobiography, he has entire chapters dedicated to how much this church meant to him. Mm. And, um, and and yet it's not really how so many people see him. And so I don't know. You know, um, there the United States has always had groups of people who were willing to weaponize and abuse religion for anything they wanted. If it sure. was sla- if it was slavery, if it was Jim Crow, if it was if it was segregation there've always been some, there's some group. In fact, the, the men and men and women who just stormed the Capitol, there are multiple videos of them praying together in the Capitol, outside of the, like they thought this was a religious moment.
0: Truly. And that's, what's terrifying.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and they weren't, there's this gut, there's this gut reaction for people to think that they were pretending. It's like, no, 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 no. They, they sincerely felt like this was a religious moment for them yeah i
0: i know the video that you're talking about and i kind of watched it in shock but then i i took a step back and i wasn't shocked at all because you can misinterpret anything and i think that that's exactly what they're doing as far as the bible goes you know they truly believe god wants trump to be president still god wants us to go and fight for our rights god is telling us to do this and they will have they will pull out a bible verse like you said and weaponize it and say, well, it says right here in the Bible. it's like, no, you guys are completely misinterpreting what (laughs) is actually being said to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so to see them, uh, in fact, the, um, the, there were two rallies. There was a rally the day before the events at the Capitol. And there was the rally the day of both of those events were overtly religious. Mm. There were, there were pastors that spoke at those events. Um, even like they were i think that's some of what caused the the men and women who did what they did to also feel like they were invincible yeah because i think the the religious nature of the events caused them to think they were doing god's work mm-hmm. and caused them to ultimately ruin their own lives in the process. Every person who is caught and held accountable there, no, nobody wants to hear this because the people who did it were were white and privileged. But as somebody who fights against mass incarceration and and who hates it, I hate that these people ruin their own lives yeah. over, over lies. It's like you were sold lies and misinformation and you've ruined your own life over it but also for uh,
0: a man that doesn't care about you
1: oh of course and 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 trump as he campaigned to be president over and over again he told he would go to michigan and mississippi and other places and literally say if i he literally said if i lose i'm never coming back here again (laughs) and it's like hold on (laughs) did you not just hear this man say he is only here for your vote and for nothing else and And but they but they would see right past it. And um no one has ever cared less for poor struggling white people than Donald Trump. Absolutely. And I think I think he's ultimately he's he's fine with using them as a commodity, but I think he's actually disgusted by by them in general. I think it's why he he told them he was gonna march with them to the Capitol, mm-hmm. and he went ahead. Yeah, but he went because he's a germaphobe uh he's like a, like there're lots of re- in the end i think he knew he's not going to go out he's not going to march with them of course not you, you know and ultimately um he's he's a coward and 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 um our country i think is it's going to take generations even to kind of undo the harm that his presidency has caused you know yeah
0: yeah i completely agree and you know it's interesting i saw it because obviously we know he's been banned from twitter thank god
1: (laughs) it took a long time but
0: it needed to happen but i saw a recent article that said that 73 percent of uh, misinformation that was shared on twitter it was it's down 73 percent rather and it's because donald trump's twitter was deleted. I mean, that's crazy to me that the president of the United States was basically the epicenter for misinformation in our society today. I
1: I saw that same article and it wasn't just like 73% of nothing. It was millions of like in a, in a, in a week span, Twitter said that there normally were like two and a half million misinformation tweets Mm -hmm. and it, and it plummeted from two and a half million into the hundreds of thousands. And in essence, basically showing that he was very much the epicenter of misinformation and you remove him, they removed others as well, but he was the primary instigator of that. And I think it's that, and I think also other people saw like, oh, if you promote misinformation, your account may, may literally be closed. And it's like, except it took Twitter four years <laughs> To finally hold him accountable. Yeah. People died. And five people died in this attack on the Capitol. It was the first attack on the United States Capitol since the war of 1812. Yeah. Like, it's a crazy moment in history. And his he learned to tie his story into my own, he learned what those young men who did what they did to me learned. Like, oh, I can get away with this. And for years and years he did. And uh, he's only now being held accountable in any kind of way.
0: And I don't think it'll make any difference. I mean, I truly hope to never hear his name again, to be honest, but you know, I I was talking to my husband about this and For someone who is as egotistical and narcissistic as he is, I'm actually surprised that he didn't handle This is just backtracking a little bit. He didn't handle coronavirus better because I almost think that had he handled it better, he might have actually been reelected.
1: Oh, no, I think he would have. He would have absolutely won had he had he just. But here's the thing, though, Melinda, is that most right now around the world most world leaders their approval ratings are the highest they've ever been mm-hmm. normally in crisis when you lead a nation through a crisis if you go to multiple even countries that are struggling with the coronavirus pandemic right now their presidents often have a 60 70 up to a 90% approval rating because people will rally behind someone even if it's your political opponent if you step up and lead, Donald Trump had an opportunity to really lead the nation through yeah. this really horrible moment. Mm-hmm. He just doesn't have it in him. He yeah. doesn't have he doesn't have the attention the attention span for it. Leadership is also not just about tweeting and speeches. like there are hard skills of being a leader and he lacks the kind of basic hard skills. And had he done it, I think his approval rating would have been significantly higher. Yeah. And it, it might've been a close election, but I a hundred percent think he would have won. And um, because even though Joe Biden won by almost 8 million votes, most of those 8 million votes are in new york and california Mm -hmm. and and in a lot of other places like pennsylvania georgia arizona joe biden barely won and and donald trump very likely had he been a skilled compassionate leader and he's neither of those things (laughs) like that's the thing we're kind of talking about um something that would have never been possible because he lacks the skills and he and he lacks the compassion had he just had one of those two things had he been skilled but an asshole he might have still he might have still won
0: right right had he
1: been unskilled but really compassionate and kind he might have still won yeah yeah but he just didn't have those things in him to to do
0: you At know. all. Or yeah. had he even just stepped aside and say, but he would never do this because it would, it would require humility, but just say like, Hey, you know, I don't know anything about this. Listen to the medical professionals and just follow their advice. Yep. He probably still would have won, but he couldn't do any, he couldn't be bothered doing any of that.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's this morning, we crossed 400,000 people who've died. Yeah. And if, if a year ago we were watching a movie about a disease that killed 400,000 people in our country, it would be like a horror movie and it would be, it would seem like science fiction. And that's the time we're living in where other countries have handled it so much better. And what's painful and the Biden administration is talking about this is it's it's not nearing its end. It's going to be a long time before we really are able to overtake it. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, only a tiny fraction of americans have even gotten vaccinated uh, yeah. less than 5% and 95% of americans haven't thousands of people are still dying every day and it's completely out of hand and it's not just him it 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 starts with trump You're right but a lot of people have just bungled and mismanaged this thing from start to finish.
0: Well, you, like you mentioned before, you were a strong critic of Biden from the beginning. And yep. he, I mean, he wasn't my choice. He wasn't even on my radar, to be honest. Like I didn't think that he would actually get to this point. I've never had an issue with him, but he just wasn't my choice. But going into their, let's look at their first year running this country. What do you think that they need to focus on the most?
1: Well, they I see it. I see that question in probably two different ways. My my primary issues as a person and as a leader are always issues of justice, mass incarceration, and policing. And I had hopes that the two of them, and I don't mean this as a harsh criticism, but both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, they helped build these systems. Right. Uh, I, and I don't say that as a critic, but as, as just someone who knows their history. Uh, Kamala Harris was the district attorney of San Francisco, the attorney general of California. Uh, she was a prosecutor in every sense of the word. She was on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Joe Biden also for over 30 years was on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And his primary legacy was building the institutions of mass incarceration, And he talked about this and bragged about this for decades. And there was this hope that I had that at the very least, these two people know a lot about the system because they helped lead it and even build it. Right. And even when Kamala was running, that was her criticism of Joe Biden. Like, Hey, you did help construct this thing. And the, the critic, the criticism of her was, biden might have constructed it but then she helped to lead it well my hope was that with all of that knowledge that they being the architects in a way could use that knowledge to undo it but the pandemic is so out of hand and is so destructive to every institution in America as you and I started talking you've had a baby in the past year and and you have a quarantine baby who, yeah. <laughs> right. who is not socialized and, and millions of families do. Like it's affected parenting, it's affected schooling, it's affected employment, it's affected every sector of our country.
0: Yeah.
1: And as high as my hopes were that we could pressure Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to do right by us, on issues of policing and mass incarceration. And I'll still fight for that. Um, The pandemic is clearly their number one responsibility right now. And I think they'll use that as an excuse for a lot of the things that they don't do. And, and I hate that, that's probably going to be the reality. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, I have compassion for both of them because I think they are inheriting a country in, in a really wounded state. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And so as a, as a leader myself, I look at them and, um, and even feel sorry for both of them because (laughs) they are about to have the most difficult job in the world. And on a good day, I think they had, they would have had an, an incredibly difficult job but they now become president and vice president of a country that's in real despair.
0: Yeah. 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 And I, I, I'm completely in agreement with you because, and I
1: hope people give them grace truly because I will. Yeah. <laughs> as, someone, as someone who has been a big critic of both of them, I, I, you have to have grace for them. I didn't plan on like um, when When I was supporting Bernie for the Democratic nomination, Mm -hmm. I never saw the coronavirus pandemic coming. And even when Joe Biden won, I thought that the pandemic would be over by now. And here we are. It's as worse as it's ever been, as bad as it's ever been. And they do deserve grace. They deserve grace because they've also had a really horrible transition. Uh, The Trump administration has done virtually nothing To help them transition their teams and their staffs and so they're going to get off to a slower start than they should have and they are inheriting an economy and uh an epidemic that is that is so destructive and so they do deserve grace yeah is that never-ending no but at you know for me um you know, we do have to give them time because I I think as I look back over even the past 100 years, I don't know that any president and vice president have walked into a more difficult time than what yeah. they are about to walk into. It's that. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who just lives in this country and, and raises my own family here, I do take some solace in the fact that Joe Biden... Has wanted to be president his whole life, mm. and this was the third time he ran. He ran in the eighties, he ran in the two thousands, and then in in twenty twenty. And I mean, literally, he ran for president over forty years. He wanted this position. I um, I think he's going to give it all he has. You know, our, our critique is, well, what is all he has? I think he's going to do his best just to, to hire. smart people who can do a good job. I have some criticisms of some of the people that he's hired. I sincerely think he'll do the best he knows how to do.
0: And I think you make a good point because I think it does matter to him because why else would he be trying, you know, for this long? Yeah,
1: I think I, and my, my dream is that it matters so much to him that he exceeds our expectations and I had really low expectations for who he would be as president on issues of justice and policing and other things. And my hope is that um, it does matter so much to him that he exceeds those expectations. And, and um, I, you know, I, I think he's gonna give it everything he has and and the people around him will do the same thing. And uh, I think. We, we need that, yeah. and even as somebody who's been extremely critical of him, I'm rooting for him and Vice President Harris to succeed and nothing and nothing less than that. We need them to succeed. But it, part of what you and I just said though, Melinda, I, I wished, I was rooting for Donald Trump to do better with the coronavirus. <laughs> right, you know, right, like, right, I, right. I didn't want him to fail with the coronavirus it's our country it's our people and and so um you, you know I'll try to it's a struggle for me to figure out you know how do we critique this administration right now because it's a really sensitive painful time for our country and so even for me I you know unless I see something that's just deeply problematic I'm even me, I, I, you know, I'll tone down my critiques and criticisms to give them time to do what they need to do.
0: I think that's a great attitude to have, and I hope more people follow in the footsteps. And I know you will be leading doing that, so I'm
1: sure people will follow
0: the things people that you, hate, you know, <laughs> People hate it no
1: matter what because of course, of um, course, people are deeply skeptical of Joe Biden for a lot of reasons that I agree that I agree with, but the primary people who I think won't give him grace right now are primarily people who've never been a leader before. And if you've ever been a leader, you look at him and look at what he's about to have to do. And, and you have empathy, sympathy, concern. Um, I had a, a, a buddy of mine that I was, praying would run for mayor of New York. And uh, I thought he would be phenomenal. And he told me like very earnestly that he thought the job was going to be too hard in 2021 for what he felt like he could put into it. And Hmm. it was the most honest answer I'd ever heard from somebody because most people just they run for ego or they run for anything and and uh when he told me that it also shook me a little bit because i felt like if this guy looks at that and thinks no it's going to be too hard uh it's a clue into just how hard it is to be um governor of california or mayor of new york city
0: Mm -hmm. you know um Mm -hmm.
1: people are hugely critical of gavin newsom right now in california and i just think it's a hard state to govern, and, and he's experiencing all of that right
0: now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in L.A., so I, I see a lot of that, and they have, you know, recall Gavin Newsom petitions going. And for me, he did mess up, I'm not going to lie. But I will say, since the beginning of the pandemic, all he's ever tried to do was stop the spread. That's all he's ever tried to do, truly.
1: In fact, he was at the beginning of the pandemic was kind of hailed around the world as an example of how you should go. He took it way more seriously than anybody uh, on the state level at the beginning of the pandemic. And people were even criticizing him, saying he's doing too much. And, um, but I mean, California, you know, is like a country and it's the literal size geographically and population wise of most countries and uh, and so it's it's a really difficult place to govern during crisis and um at the end of the day you know people this pandemic is hard on everybody emotionally financially and um It was part of my, you know, my, I don't mean to uh, just keep bragging about Bernie, but (laughs) part of my love of Bernie Sanders was that I felt like he was kind of made for this type of moment. um, For a a moment where people were really hurting financially, emotionally. um, And I'm hoping, I think Joe Biden's best quality uh, is that he's very empathetic. And, um, yeah, he's a man who has experienced tremendous loss. Um, and in that sense, I'm, I'm just hopeful that his empathy will, will help him govern well.
0: Well, before we wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about your book. And I think one of the other things that I really enjoy about it is that you give people the tools to kind of use their own story to make impact. And I love that you say that you have everything that you need right now, which is just you, you can make a difference. So aside from that, when people pick up your book and read it and finish it, what is the one thing that you want them to take away from it?
1: I think the primary thing that I want people to get when they read it is that they have to make a decision about at least one problem they wanna solve in the world. And there are an endless number of problems for us to confront. And in some ways, the sheer volume of problems, including all the problems of policing and mass incarceration, the environment, the economy, the sheer volume of problems overwhelms us and what happens, Melinda, is that most people end up just not making a choice and they don't choose to solve or to fight to solve any particular problem. And and there's an emotional payoff that you can get from that because you can care about a whole lot of problems. And that makes you feel I care about a lot of problems and it makes you feel like, OK, I have a heart for a lot of things that are wrong in the world. But until you make a decision to actually solve and fight to solve one of those problems, you won't really see and understand how to use your life in a way that can really impact that problem. And one person, and not and, and I'm probably not even the best example of this because people will look at me and say, well, Sean, you can do this because you have this number of followers or you have this amount of influence. People without followers, people that aren't even on social media, great example would be uh, Brian Stevenson who runs the Equal Justice Initiative. He doesn't even have a Twitter or Facebook or Instagram account and every day he's fighting to uh, overturn wrongful convictions of people. He's decided to just say, how can I use my life to change one particular problem? And any one of us can do that. And it may just, th- that problem may be super local. It could, it could be something in your town, in your school, in your city, in your state. But until you decide, here's the thing that bothers me so much that I'm gonna do something about it, you can guarantee that you won't be effective at solving that problem. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in that sense. Until you decide that you're going to be a real part of the solution, there'll be doors closed to you that could be open once you made the decision. And um, you know, I called the book "Make Change" really to help people understand that change and change can be can be good or bad, good or evil. Change is made; it's made by people who make decisions to take the country or a problem in any one particular direction. But you have to choose to make change for the problems that you care about. And I try to lead people through the process of what it means to make those decisions and and how to follow up on on those, those decisions once you've made them.
0: I love that. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your voice. I love all of the steps that you are taking to make a difference. I, I love everything that you do, and I'm really happy that we've connected and we were able to chat.
1: Yeah, thank you, Melinda. It was an honor and I'm glad to be here with you.
0: Of course. And listeners, thank you so much for supporting We Need to Talk. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.